0: It's late September 1717 in the Bahamas, a typical day in the bustling pirate port of Nassau. Sailors busy themselves with unloading newly captured booty from the countless prize ships that litter the docks. Others traipse from tavern to tavern, swigging rum, occasionally breaking out into sea shanties, enjoying their time on land after months spent raiding at sea. The entire scene is watched over by one of Nassau's newest pirate captains, Edward Thatch, otherwise known as Blackbeard. Less than a year ago, Thatch was rewarded with a ship of his own, given to him by his friend and partner, Benjamin Hornigold. A small six-gun sloop with a crew of 70 men. It's a modest vessel, but it's his. So far, he's had great success but the seasoned pirate is always searching for the next opportunity. His dark eyes stare out from his tanned, chiseled face. Twisting the ends of his long, greasy whiskers, he absent-mindedly scans the horizon. His eyes turn to a ship slowly making its way into port. As it draws nearer, Blackbeard sees that it's an impressive but heavily damaged sloop of war. Its sails are torn and the hull is scorched, scarred by cannon fire and musket shot. The jolly roger that it once flew now lies limp, hanging tattered from the mast. Men wearily tend to the rigging, hobbling back and forth across the deck. Some are bloody and heavily bandaged. It's obvious that the ship recently engaged in a violent battle and lost. A dazed-looking man emerges from the captain's quarters. He limps badly. He's an odd-looking fellow. Soft, blonde, pudgy, dressed in a fine silk robe. His plump, rosy cheeks are smeared with gunpowder, and his head is wrapped in bandages. He seems bewildered, staring at all the pirate vessels that surround him in Nassau Harbour. Is this really the captain? Blackbeard wonders incredulously. He knows a landlubber when he sees one. He'd be shocked if this man, with his milky complexion and flabby physique, had ever spent a day at sea in his life. So how has he found himself at the helm of such a fine ship? Well, it turns out he's not a pirate at all. Or at least, not really. His name is Steed Bonnet, an aristocrat from Barbados who, for some mysterious reason, decided to leave his life of privilege behind and turn pirate. And from the looks of his ship, he's doing a terrible job of it. Blackbeard doesn't know it yet, but the arrival of this strange gentleman will change the course of his life. In fact, it will be the making of him. It will launch his career, transforming him into the most feared pirate the world has ever seen. I'm Tom Morton and welcome to Real Pirates. The show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the Black Flag. Alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonnie, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the Seven Seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. His family are highly respected in the colony, being among the first to settle there. Upon arriving, the Bonnets wasted no time in laying the foundation for their fortune. For decades, they cleared the island's tangled, low-lying jungle, eventually building a massive 400-acre sugar plantation. Jeremy Moss is the author of The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Steed Bonnet.
1: Barbados was one of the wealthiest places in the Caribbean for sure. Probably one of the wealthiest places at the time in the New World. You know, being the windwardmost island, which means it's the farthest out of the wind in the Caribbean. Barbados had a lot of advantages. First of all, it was the first place where people got news reports. It's the first place they got goods from Europe, eventually slaves and laborers and servants and that kind of thing. So it just made it very, very conducive to commerce. And Steed's grandfather was one of the first and early members of that Barbados society. And something called the sugar revolution happened. And what the sugar revolution was, it was a way that the English figured out how to raise sugar, mostly with the use of slave labor, when Steed's grandfather, father, and then ultimately Steed himself ran a sugar plantation. And so Steed was from money. By the time
0: Steed is born, the bonnet plantation is thriving. The main house is palatial, bedecked with all manner of colonial finery, rich mahogany furniture inlaid with gold, vases of Chinese porcelain, intricate rugs from the Orient, sparkling silver cutlery. Steed's every whim is attended to by three house servants. As for the sugar fields, young Steed is never expected to lift a finger. The family has enslaved 94 people for that purpose. His early years are spent gallivanting about the Bonnet estate, getting fat off sweets and playing with the children of other wealthy families. But then in 1694, when Bonnet is just six years old, tragedy strikes. His father dies and his mother, perhaps stricken with grief, follows shortly after. Steed Bonnet is now an orphan set to inherit one of the greatest estates in Barbados. But until then, he is watched over by guardians who make sure that he is groomed as the fine gentleman he was born to be.
1: The 400-acre estate was put under a conservatorship under a woman named Whetstone, who we think that is his mother's friend or his mother's cousin, perhaps. But Youngsteed inherited and was raised in this bustling Bonnet estate. So he had access to and reign over this full 400 acres of sugarcane fields. And from age 11 until adulthood, Steed really didn't have any significant responsibility. He could run across the grounds of the estate however he wanted, a kind of full reign over it.
0: It's safe to assume that during this period, the young Steed Bonnet lived a life of fantasy, playing games of make-believe as he bounded through the brush and rolling hills of his estate. Perhaps in the surrounding jungles under the shade of tropical trees, he pretended to be a highwayman brandishing a wooden sword on white sand beaches looking out across crystal blue waters. He may have made believe he was a sailor, exploring the seas and living a life of freedom. Or maybe, having heard the exploits of the infamous buccaneer Captain Kidd, who was executed in 1701 when Steed was just 13, he dreamed of being a pirate. But when Bonnet reaches adulthood, the fantasy is shattered. As a teenager, He takes full control of the plantation and his days become filled with monotonous tasks. No longer can he spend his time exploring the estate. Instead, Steed is confined to an office scouring over ledgers and making dull financial decisions. He is also now charged with overseeing the 94 enslaved laborers.
1: Bonnet's continued use of slave labor would have aligned him with other Barbadian aristocrats. So slavery was critical to the still-developing sugar plantocracy. The way that sugar was mass-produced at the time required a huge amount of labor, and most of that labor came from slave labor. In fact, Barbados would eventually provide the blueprint for how future slave colonies, like South Carolina as an example, would act in colonial America.
0: Barbadian plantation owners are known for their ruthless treatment of those they enslave. These forced laborers are defined under Barbadian law as lifelong possessions. They endure terrible and inhumane conditions, treated more like livestock than people. Unsurprisingly, enslaved workers often attempt to escape. As a result, a militia is formed to hunt them down. Once caught, Runaways are subject to harsh and humiliating punishments including a practice called the cage in which they are placed in a pen in the town square. There they are starved and publicly abused. After weeks of this torture they are then brought back to their enslavers. When Steve Bonnet comes of age, he is made a major in the militia that enforces these practices. Exactly how active he is in the militia is unknown. However, it is certain that he did not earn the title of Major due to any military prowess. Barbadian law bestows military titles upon all landowning aristocracy. Nevertheless, from this point forward he will be known as Major Steed Bonnet. If that title lends a certain amount of prestige to his name, it's worth remembering that it was given to Bonnet not for feats of bravery, but through perpetuating the barbaric practice of slavery in Barbados. In 1709, at the age of 21, Bonnet marries 16-year-old Mary Allenby, the eldest daughter of another wealthy plantation family. Taking place in St. Michael's Cathedral in Bridgetown, their wedding is the social event of the season. It is easy to imagine that as Steed looks into his bride's fresh young face, he sees his life stretch out before him. A life almost identical to that of his father, grandfather and great-grandfather before him. He will grow old and fat from the riches of his plantation. Mary will bear him children and they in turn will lead lives very similar to his own. The cycle will continue on and on, long after he is dead. For a while at least... Steed and Mary's life follows the pattern that it was always destined to. They live in opulence and luxury in their lavish home in Bridgeton. From the outside, Steed Bonnet's life appears perfect. It's a life that, say, the pirates in Nassau could only dream of. But Bonnet's internal world, by some accounts, does not mirror the idyllic exterior.
1: What is clear is that even in the midst of such a significant bounty, right, he had whatever he needed. For some reason, Bonnet did not adjust well to married life or family life. He suffered from what the general history of the pirates said was some discomforts he found in the married state. Basically, he was not comfortable being married. And that same author said, eventually, this caused Bonnet, quote, a disorder in his mind. So a lot of people have really hung on to that quote. Bonnet had a nagging wife and he simply just couldn't take it anymore and he had to leave but the real reasons of these discomforts are not really well preserved. Whatever the reason, it seems
0: Bonnet slipped into a malaise. He becomes increasingly withdrawn from his everyday life as a businessman, husband and father of four. He seeks relief through the only means of escape he has left. Books, and some of the most popular books of the era are accounts of daring sea voyages and pirates. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd, and How He Changed Piracy Forever.
2: For instance, in Alexander Escamelon's book, The History of the Buccaneers of America, he talks a lot about the pirate Henry Morgan, who sacked Panama. He also would have read books that were voyages written by Hacklett a major explorer, Christopher Columbus's four voyages to the Americas. You would have had books written about Sir Francis Drake who circumnavigated the globe, Magellan, all these major, major maritime sailors.
0: Bonnet spends hours upon hours tucked away in his cozy library, devouring every book on exploration and piracy he can get his hands on. Swathed in his dressing gown, nestled in a plush chair, he imagines himself at sea, cutting through uncharted waters and exploring strange faraway lands. In 1712, privateers Edward Cook and Woods Rogers published their respective accounts of a voyage around the world. Both books are wildly popular at the time. Bonnet pictures the exotic animals they encounter in the islands that dot the South Seas the fascinating people they meet, and the exciting battles they bravely engage in with enemy ships. Closing the book, he turns to look out the window. He gazes forlornly at the ships leaving the port. Vessels he'll never set foot on, traveling to places he'll never see. Barbados is positioned right in the center of this unprecedented era of exploration And yet here he sits, unmoving.
1: It's certainly possible that he got kind of a fear of missing out, right? He understood that the world was such a big place, and no matter how much money he made from his sugar plantation and how many servants he had and what kind of parties he was going to, that there was something else out there. I believe very strongly, actually, that that's a piece of it, that Bonnet had heard over and over again that there were these men that were traveling the globe and doing very, very interesting things, and then here he was, on an island, the same island he was born at, the same island his father was born at, and, you know, I think it was just too much, this fear of missing out really kind of created some wanderlust, and he, he acted on it. Towards the end of 1716,
0: something deep inside Bonnet's mind shifts. He decides to finally live out the fantasies he has kept secret for so long. As a plantation owner and trader, The young man is well aware of the burgeoning pirate nest in the Bahamas. While his fellow sugar planters are enraged by the actions of pirates like Sam Bellamy and Benjamin Hornigold, Bonnet is entranced. He is struck like so many before him with the humour to go pirating.
2: Being in Barbados, which was one of the major plantation islands, there would have been a lot of piratical activity happening in and around Barbados. Also a lot of news travelling from other islands such as Jamaica and the other plantation islands and also sailors coming down from the North American continent, he would have been very aware of piracy, especially being a plantation owner who was producing goods that need to be sold. So working with merchants. So there was kind of this idea, a bit of a romantic idea that even did exist then, that pirates were kind of living a bit of a life of adventure and were able to really cast off all social restrictions that they might have had because pirates didn't ally themselves with anybody just to themselves. And a lot of them were able to transcend social barriers such as class, so even though people were very terrified of pirates and many didn't like pirates, they were still his fascination. And Steve Bonnet was definitely caught up in this.
0: On December 3rd, 1716, Burnett's means of escape sails into the Barbadian Harbor. It's a small sloop captained by Godfrey Malbone. It bears the name Revenge, a common name for pirate ships. Bonnet might have seen this as a sign. The time to act is now. In spite of having zero sailing experience, he approaches Malbone to purchase his ship. Malbone certainly doesn't suspect that this pasty, finely dressed landowner, a man that looks like he's never worked a day in his life, has piracy in mind. And he can't possibly know that in a matter of months, the revenge will launch the career of one of the most notorious pirate captains in history. Blackbeard. So without hesitation, Malbone sells the revenge to Bonnet.
1: It really presented Bonnet with the perfect opportunity to kind of satisfy his longing for adventure on the sea, or, you know, alternatively to provide an outlet from the discomforts of his home life. But what we've learned from the historical record is that Bonnet bought the sloop outright. He had taken out previously a $400,000 loan 1,700 pounds technically, equivalent of $400,000 in current dollars, and commissioned this local shipyard to fit out this sloop. So he didn't build it from scratch, but he did find a ship that was available. He had read a lot about these things, we assume. He knew the sloop was a great ship. Then modifications were made to make sure that it could carry at least a dozen cannons, more than a hundred men.
0: Most of the modifications that Bonnet makes to the Revenge are fairly standard. Pirates often commandeer merchant ships and transform them into sloops of war. But Bonnet takes it a step further. He kits out the captain's quarters with all the finery he's come to expect as a wealthy aristocrat. Lush bedding, silver cutlery, expensive furniture. He also has a full library installed on board. There he will keep all his favourite adventure novels. The very books that inspired this flight of fancy will join him as he lives out his dream, sailing the seven seas. But before his adventures can begin, Bonnet needs to find a crew, and he must do so in secret. Bonnet's purchase of the Revenge in itself does not raise any eyebrows in Barbados. It's common enough for businessmen to buy boats for day cruises or trade missions. But if word gets out that he's actively recruiting over a hundred men to join him in a life of piracy, well, his grand adventure will be over before it's begun. Usually, Pyro captains have no trouble recruiting a crew. However, Bonnet, who has no maritime experience whatsoever, is a very different proposition. He will need to be very persuasive to get a group of seasoned mariners to put their lives in his deeply inexperienced hands.
2: Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 platinum jackpot.
0: Undeterred, in early 1717, Bonnet sets out from his mansion in Bridgeton and heads to the port. If the sailors are anything like the men in his books, he's sure they will jump at the chance for an adventure with him in his fine new ship. But as he reaches the docks, Bonnet begins to feel uneasy. The streets are dirty and smell of shit. He jumps slightly at the sound of shattering glass and blushes as a few sex workers blow him kisses from the window of a brothel. Taking a moment to compose himself, Bonnet sets his eyes on a dimly lit tavern and walks with as much confidence as he can muster through its doors. As soon as he enters, the room goes quiet. You see, before leaving the house, Bonnet had not thought that he might want to try and blend in with the sailors he hoped to recruit. He's dressed like any fine gentleman of the era would when going into town, in a gold-trimmed tri-corner hat, powdered wig, silk stockings and heeled, pointed toe shoes embellished with a gold buckle. Amongst the tanned, battle-scarred sea dogs that fill the tavern, he sticks out like a sore thumb. Nervously, he approaches a table of sailors. The men are loudly telling crude jokes and comparing notes on which port town contains the most willing women. After awkwardly clearing his throat a few times, Bonnet is able to get their attention. Doing his best to imitate the men's colorful way of speaking, he launches into his well-rehearsed pitch. They'll set sail on his fine new sloop of war and take every ship that crosses their path. Together they'll explore strange and uncharted lands and make merry as they enjoy the spoils of their conquests. He finishes with a flourish of his lace-fringed sleeve. The men sit before him in stunned silence. They know firsthand how difficult, how extremely dangerous life is aboard a pirate ship. They can only dream of the comfortable existence this strange gentleman seems so eager to abandon. Why on earth would he give it all up to live a life of desperation at sea after a pregnant pause one of them starts laughing hysterically the rest quickly join in Burnett's face grows flush turning a deep beetroot red but the men stop laughing when he pulls his true ace out of his
1: sleeve money either Because he didn't know any better or because he thought this was the best way to hire his crew, Bonnet went out and hired 126 men and paid them a salary. Basically promised them a wage over time, regardless of what they did. And that was unique at the time, and that lasted probably for several months thereafter until the pirating really, really began. Bonnet offering to pay his pirate crew a salary is unheard of.
0: Typically, pirate crews are given a cut of the booty captured in raids. They sign the ship's articles, essentially a contract stating codes of conduct and what portion of the spoils they'll receive. Knowing that there's a possibility the mission will be unsuccessful and they won't get paid. So Bonnet offering them a guaranteed salary, and a good one at that, is very tempting.
2: I think Bonnet's initial crew probably were a bit skeptical of him. And I'm sure a lot of them kind of went in thinking he was kind of naive. But here's the thing, he was extremely wealthy. And he was offering these people a very high salary, which they wouldn't get anywhere else, even though we're not sure what would have happened with the plundered loot. They're kind of like, okay, we're not being forced into doing this. We're choosing to do this. He's gonna pay us a lot of money. At the very least, maybe we can kind of advise him what to do.
0: With his crew assembled, Bonnet makes preparations to leave. In March, he has a power of attorney drawn up, appointing Mary and two of his close friends to handle his affairs. No one knows if Mary, who has only just given birth to their fourth child, has any idea what's about to happen. On the evening of April 13th, 1717, Steed Bonnet sneaks out of his mansion under the cover of darkness. At the port, the revenge, filled with 126 crewmen, awaits. Overcome with nerves and excitement, Bonnet boards his ship. This is the moment he's dreamed of for so long, one that he thought would never come to pass. He steps up onto the helm and orders his men to head north. As the revenge silently sails out of the Barbadian harbor, Steed watches as his home and his past fades slowly away. Soon, the little island he spent his entire life on is nothing but a blip on the horizon. Taking one last look, he turns to face the enormity of the ocean in front of him, a blank canvas filled with unknown adventures that until now, he could only dream of. Steed Burnett will never return to Barbados, nor will he see his family ever again. June 1717. The revenge slides easily through the clear Caribbean sea. She's light and fast, and she's on the hunt. Wanting to put as much distance between himself and Barbados as possible, Bonnet sets a course for the Virginia capes. Positioned at the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, the capes are an ideal spot for pirating. They need only sit and wait These waterways are full of merchant vessels, stocked with fine goods, heading to bustling colonial ports like Norfolk and Baltimore. In fact, only a few days before Bonnet arrives, Governor Alexander Spotswood of Virginia complained that our capes have been for these six weeks past in manner blocked by those pirates, and diverse ships inward bound taken and plundered by them. Bonnet and his crew have some initial success, plundering several ships and taking their provisions, textiles, money and ammunition. The provisions in particular are important, as even after just a few weeks at sea the Revenge's own stores are depleted.
1: Life on a pirate ship is probably different for Steve Bonnet than anybody else. It really was a life of feast and famine right? So as soon as they leave a port, their food stores would likely be relatively full, right? But they were difficult to keep up because of those wet, salty conditions. Fresh water was stored in casks, which was prone to developing algae or mold. But these guys were at sea for a long period of time, and there was really not any safe ports for them to go to. So they relied on the taking of provisions for other people. So the diet was kind of a far cry from what Bonnet would have been used to.
0: Living off rations of stale tack biscuits, meagre portions of salted meat and pickled vegetables, Bonnet, for the first time in his life, feels the pains of hunger. It's a feeling that his men are used to. But for Bonnet, who is accustomed to simply ringing a servant whenever he feels peckish, the sensation is entirely foreign. It is perhaps his first inkling that the reality of life aboard a pirate ship is far different to the fantasy he imagined. It is not all adventure and merrymaking. In fact, most of the time pirates' lives are filled with extended periods of boredom and austerity. Typical hardships aside, Steed Bonnet's piratical career seems to be off to a good start. However, there is one ship that they take near the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay, the Turbet, that presents a unique problem. Bonnet had released the first three ships they'd taken, but the Turbet, along with her captain and the majority of the crew, hail from Steed Bonnet's hometown, Bridgeton, Barbados. Upon setting sail, Bonnet ordered his crew to refer to him as Captain Edwards in order to protect his identity, perhaps also out of respect for his family. However, it's very likely that the captain of the Tibet and his crew recognize Major Steed Bonnet. We can only imagine their shock when they discover that the pirate now raiding their ship is none other than the gentleman they'd seen traipsing through town in his fine clothes or speeding through the streets in an opulent carriage.
1: So, Steed Bonnet took several steps to mask his identity throughout his piratical career. And the theory is that he was trying to prevent word of his exploits to get back to Barbados. He may have been concerned about his reputation, he may have been concerned about his family's reputation, but the reality is that Steed was likely angling to return to Barbados once his spree of plunder was completed. Bonnet sees no other option. The Tibet must be destroyed. They sail it to
0: a secluded inlet in North Carolina and set it ablaze. The Tibet's captain and crew watch from the shore in disbelief as Steed Bonnet sails away in his pirate ship, leaving them stranded. From North Carolina, Bonnet and the crew of the Revenge once again head north, this time to New York. They take a sloop heading for the West Indies off the coast of Long Island before setting a course to Gardner's Island, another famed pirate haunt. It's there that the infamous Captain William Kidd supposedly buried his treasure in 1699. On Gardner's Island, Bonnet releases his captives and purchases some naval supplies. At this point, Bonnet, in spite of his efforts to keep his pirating under wraps, has been found out. On July 19th, the Royal Navy is alerted that Major Steed Bonnet of Barbados has turned pirate and is now plundering ships along the coastal American colonies. He's now a wanted man, an outlaw. Bonnet orders his men to change course and head back south to the burgeoning pirate haven of
1: Charlestown, South Carolina. The Charlestown Harbor is a perfect place for pirates to sit and wait. The harbor is linked to the Atlantic Ocean by two main shipping channels. The smaller hugs Sullivan's Island, the larger runs just off the beach of Morris Island. And Bonnet and other pirates could position themselves right at the confluence of those two channels.
0: This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. It's August 1717. Bonnet and his crew now need only wait for unsuspecting ships to fall into their trap. They soon spot their first target, a large brigantine hailing from Boston. Bonnet gives the order to raise the Jolly Roger adorned with skull and bones, a dagger and a red heart. The brigantine surrenders without the revenge even having to fire a shot.
1: Most of the time when we think about pirates, at least for me, I think about these kind of large naval battles, right? They're chasing down ships and they're volleying cannonballs back and forth and small arms fire and they're having large sword fights on the decks of these ships. The reality is that that was rarely the case. Most often, pirates took their targets with relative ease. They would usually shoot a shot or two across the bow of a ship and board the ship and that would be the end of it.
0: There is no valuable cargo aboard the ship, but Bonnet decides to hold her and her crew to prevent them from warning the authorities in Charlestown of their presence. Not long after they take the brigantine, a sloop comes along which also surrenders without a fight. Luckily, the vessel is filled with valuable cargo including rum, and sugar. But there is a problem. It hails from Barbados. Once again, Bonnet is recognized. Just like the Turbet, Burnett has the Barbadian sloop set on fire. It's now early September 1717. So far, Steed Bonnet's strange whim to turn pirate has astonishingly proven successful. The Revenge and her crew have taken every ship they've targeted, without having to engage in battle. The hull is filled with plundered provisions and a sizable amount of goods to fence. From the outside, things seem to be going well. But aboard the ship, Steed Bonnet's utter lack of experience is becoming a problem.
1: This early success, I think, started to lull everybody to sleep right, thinking, hey, we're doing pretty good so far. We've made it this far. Steed may not know exactly what he's doing, but so far, so good. And it wasn't until later that they really figured out that Steed didn't know what he was doing. They hit South Carolina they went to Charlestown, which is now Charleston. And after having some success there and careening the ship, they didn't know where else to go. They basically got stuck. And and most of these pirate ships, interestingly enough, were democracies. So when you had a big decision about where we're gonna go next, what ports are we gonna go to, what are we gonna look after, they would normally vote. But because Steed paid a wage, the theory is that he was probably ruling the ship like a dictator. Well, if everybody's looking at Steed to make these decisions, you can only imagine when he doesn't know what he's doing that very quickly it starts to evidence himself.
0: You see, pirate ships operate as democracies in part because the crew are not paid a wage. The captain, quartermaster and crew all start the voyage with nothing and work towards the common goal of plundering as much booty as possible. Typically the captain of a pirate ship only has executive control during battle. Bonnet, however, is not a typical captain. On land he is used to having servants and enslaved people attend to his every whim it's safe to assume that he has the same expectations of his salaried crew. The major difference is that Bonnet knows how to run a plantation. He is completely clueless as to how to run a ship. The crew now look to their employer for guidance he cannot give. They become divided, unable to make a decision on where to head next. To make matters worse, Bonnet's behavior is becoming increasingly erratic.
1: It's possible that he really did have a disorder in his mind. Some of the things that he did show some real characteristics, right? He was known to kind of yell and scream at people on the deck. He certainly made rash decisions. He ignored his family. He did a lot of things that are unexplainable.
0: After days of utter confusion, the crew finally convinced Bonnet to head to the coast of Florida to fish the Spanish wrecks. If you'll recall from episode two, In 1715, the entire Spanish treasure fleet sank in a hurricane, spilling millions of pounds of treasure across the Florida coast. Since then, the wrecks have become a popular spot for pirates looking for an easy target. In mid-September 1717, the revenge arrives in the warm, tropical waters off the Florida coast. Soon, a lookout spots a large merchant ship flying Spanish colors. Emboldened by his recent success, Bonnet gives the orders to prepare for attack. Striding across the deck with confidence, he barks at the men. Prepare for a fight. Down chests, up hammocks, bring the small arms upon the quarter and every man to his post. Be on the ready, men. Our prize is ahead. Typically when attacking a large vessel, pirates will fly the flags of friendly nations before raising the Jolly Roger in order to catch their prey off guard. Bonnet, however, doesn't think this will be necessary, and has his black flag raised immediately. After all, in his experience, most surrender immediately at the sight of it. He has now finally become the fearsome pirate captain he always dreamed of. Or so he thinks. The revenge begins its pursuit, but as they approach, a horrific realization dawns on them. The ship they are about to engage is not a merchant vessel at all. The closer they get, the clearer their folly becomes. They see soldiers on deck, carrying muskets and pikes. The sun glints off the stacked rows of guns being rolled out for action. It's a Spanish man-of-war. Up to 60 meters long and boasting as many as 120 guns, these warships are some of the deadliest vessels on water. Bonnet's revenge is dwarfed not only in size, but in firepower. Seeing Bonnet's black flag, the captain of the Spanish ship is pleasantly amused, if a little bewildered. What manner of pirate would attack a man of war, stationed for the exact purpose of fighting them off? Not a very good pirate, he laughs to himself, before calmly giving the order to come about and engage the revenge. Bonnet and his crew attempt to flee, but it's too late. The warship closes in. A hundred meters, 50 meters. Bonnet feels nauseous as he locks eyes with the smirking Spanish captain. A bloodbath ensues. The man of war is the first to fire, volleying a devastating broadside into the revenge. Instantly, the deck is enveloped by cannon smoke. The cries of injured and dying men flood the deck. Bonnet is stunned. He coughs and strains his eyes. His helmsman pleads for orders. By the time Bonnet locates the man of war it's too late. Again. The warship has manoeuvred so that its guns now face the revenge's stern. In an instant, cannon fire once again thunders through the air. Cannonballs tear through the cabin kitchen and storerooms, shards of wood explode through the decks, flying through the air like arrows. Men are dismembered, disemboweled, and disfigured. Others lie dead in a mangled heap. But bonnet barely has time to assess the damage. As hell rains down upon them, he feels his leg erupt in a searing pain before he loses consciousness. Over half of the 126 men on board have died in the fight. The few able-bodied pirates remaining somehow manage to steer the revenge away from trouble. They find Bonnet unconscious among the dead and dying and carry him to his quarters. There he will remain for weeks, writhing in pain and confusion amongst the rubble of the cabin he had so meticulously designed. His beloved books lie about him, singed and torn. From time to time, he limps out onto the deck in a daze, wearing his silk dressing gown. In these brief moments of lucidity, Bonnet might well have felt a deep regret in choosing the life of a pirate. The disastrous run-in with the man of war shattered his rose-tinted vision of piracy in a matter of minutes. The dream is over. Now only fear and uncertainty remain. Bonnet is in no condition to give orders, so the crew plot a course to the one place nearby they know they'll get help, Nassau.
1: And this is really the pivotal point of it. I mean, this is really the shift in the Bonnet story that makes him from little-known pirate to one of the most significantly or well-known pirates of that golden age. And it's because when the crew took over the ship, they decided that they were going to go to Nassau in the Bahamas, which we now know or refer to as the Republic of Pirates. So the crew takes them down to Nassau and it's here where at some point Steve Bonnet meets Edward Teach or Edward Thatch, Blackbeard the Pirate. And that's going to really shift the trajectory of both of their lives forever.
0: At the end of September 1717, the revenge limps into Nassau Harbour. Steed Bonnet, hearing the sounds of the ship docking, heads to the deck, still in his dressing gown. As his eyes adjust to the bright Caribbean sunshine, he is confronted with a sight that until this point had only existed in his imagination. He's surrounded by pirate ships, great sloops of war, lumbering merchant vessels, swift brigantines, flying black flags as the revenge approaches the pirate Republic of Nassau it's easy to imagine bonnet growing overcome with excitement he's about to meet his heroes men like Benjamin Hornigold and Sam Bellamy who inspired him to turn pirate giddily his eyes drink in the scene hoping to catch a glimpse of some famous pirate captain little does he realize He's the one being watched. Bonnet notices a dark, striking man stood on the docks, staring directly at him. With his long hair and beard and dueling pistols draped across his chest, the pirate stands out from the crowd. Something about his piercing gaze sends a chill down Bonnet's spine. How could he know that this unsettling stranger will change not only his life, but the history of piracy as a whole. In the coming days and months, he, along with everyone else, on both sides of the Atlantic, will know his name. Blackbeard. Next week on Real Pirates, we continue the strange tale of two unlikely allies The gentleman pirate Steed Bonnet, and the soon-to-be-notorious Edward Thatch, Blackbeard. There couldn't be two more different pirates, and yet somehow they form a partnership that would terrorize the Americas more than anyone before or since. Blackbeard will soon become a living legend, but with fame comes recognition. And for an outlaw, a reputation can be a double-edged sword, one that could be his downfall. Find out next week. On Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Borow for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Addison Nugent. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.